for the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and get started. Can everyone hear me okay? All right. Raise your hand if you uh, know someone who is same-sex attracted or living a homosexual lifestyle. All right. Now raise your hand if you realize you're in the wrong class. All right. Okay. So this topic is obviously one that affects every single one of us and is uh, perhaps maybe one of the most relevant topics currently in our society that needs intersection of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, my name is John Sherwood. I'm one of the associate ministers in Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, I'm grateful to be here along with Ellen and the Reynolds as well, who will be sharing after I am. I wanted to kind of go through some introductory things before I share in my portion of the class, and then at the end we're going to have hopefully a few minutes for some uh, Q&A. And uh, if you have any questions, we'd ask that you please uh, refrain from asking questions that are very specific and personal in nature, uh, but more general, general questions that are more applicable to everyone. And if you'd like to talk about things that are maybe a little bit more personal, we're going to all hang around after the class. We'd love to be able to talk through that, uh, answer any questions that we might be able to answer, and definitely be able to connect and exchange information and continue to dialogue after this class. So um, I wanted to start by uh, reading a passage out of 1 Corinthians 9, and as I go, uh, I'm not going to take time for you guys to flip to the Bible passages that I'm reading, so please feel free to jot them down, and I am super pumped to be here, so if I start speaking fast, or go ahead and just kind of give me one of these, like, pump the brakes, John, slow down, uh, I will definitely try to do that, but we've got a lot to talk about, there's no way we're going to be able to cover everything in uh, just a short 60 minutes, so uh, please bear with me here, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, expressing his heart about about sharing the gospel, about bringing the gospel to intersect with his culture and his society. He says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To those not under the law, I became as though one not under the law. To the weak, I became weak, and so on and so forth. He said, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. He said, I do all of this so that by all possible means, some might be saved. Paul's heart was that for the sake of the gospel, he would become whatever he needed to become for the gospel to be spread. Now, he did say, however, he is not free from the law of Jesus Christ, right? He was not free to expound outside of the constraints of Jesus, but anything within the constraints of Jesus, anything societally, culturally, historically, anything he could do to make the gospel attractive so that some might be saved was his heart. I want to start there because I think as we talk about this topic, that needs to be the backdrop. That we as Christians, we as ministers of reconciliation are willing to do and be whatever we need to be for the sake of the gospel that we may be able to share in its blessings. You know, some of you guys came here with different expectations of what this class is going to be, expectations of what you're going to get and gain from it. Some of you guys came because you couldn't believe this was on the lineup at the conference and you said, man, I just got to check that out. You know, what are they going to say? And so you came. And so for that, I say thank you. You know, some of you guys have specific questions. Some of you have specific relationships that you want help with that are in the LGBT community. We all come here with different expectations, different experiences, but there is a lot of common unifying experience that we share. I'm absolutely sure that we will not answer every question. I'm absolutely sure of that. Not today, not tomorrow, but you know what? Jesus has every answer. And that's what I want to continue to point us back to. Let me go through a few definitions, right? LGBT. It's an acronym. Most of us might be familiar with it. It's the most common designation that kind of umbrellas the gay community. It stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. It's the most common um, nomenclature to represent that group, though there are others. Sometimes you'll see that extended with other acronyms to represent other groups. Uh, everyone kind of has their own personal preference on what is uh, the best nomenclature or name to represent. But for the sake of this class, I'll refer to that as LGBT. You might also hear the term same sex attraction, attracted or attraction. Same sex attraction is a term that you might hear a little bit more frequently in church circles, in Christian circles. And especially in our church, what it typically is referring to is someone who is attracted sexually to the same gender as themselves, but because of their faith, because of their convictions on the word of God, they deny those attractions. They deny acting out on those attractions, though they are still there. Okay, These are some terms that we might hear as we talk about this topic. Undoubtedly, in every single one of our ministries, there are likely Christians living with same-sex attractions. 
Christ. Yet many of them, if not most, do not feel comfortable or safe to be honest about it. There is still a great stigma surrounding same-sex attraction, surrounding homosexuality, especially in the church, especially in our churches, that I think prevent people from being able to be open, to be able to be vulnerable and truly transparent. So that's one aside that I want to mention, is that we want to continue to work towards safety, towards vulnerability, to really first John, right? To walk in the light as Jesus is in the light and to walk in the light with fellowship with one another. This is not going to be my primary focus today. I'm not going to primarily focus on Christians in the church struggling with same-sex attractions, okay? For that, a good friend of mine and brother in Canada, Guy Hammond, some of you guys might be familiar with him, you might have heard him, maybe read some of his books. He runs a ministry called Strength in Weakness Ministries that is specifically geared towards Christians living with same-sex attractions. You can go to his website, strengthinweakness.org. I would highly recommend if you have not to go read his book that he wrote called Caring Beyond the Margins. It's a great introductory book to get your feet wet into this topic, to understand, to be able to be more effective for those both in the church and outside of the church. Again, that's strengthinweakness.org. If you'd like to go check any of that out, you can buy his book there. Let me paint a scenario for you. A gay couple walks in off the street through the doors of your church. And you have that burning question inside of you of how do I love them, but yet make sure that they don't feel that I condone their sin. Raise your hand if you've ever felt that question. I think it's the wrong question. And I want to illustrate why it's the wrong question by spinning the scenario a little bit. Okay? Let's say a heterosexual couple walks in off the street to the doors of your church and you know that they're unmarried and that they're living together in sexual sin. Do you still feel that tension of how do I love them and yet make sure that I don't condone their sin? Most of the time we don't feel that tension there, which illustrates a point. We do think of homosexuality differently than other sins. Now, we know biblically that that's not really true. We know biblically, if we've studied the Bible for more than about four days, all sin is equal in the sight of God, right? That's part of the basic truth that we come to Jesus in. No matter what you have done, one sin or one gajillion sins, no matter what type they were, you have been cast aside from God and become His enemy. But yet, in our minds, in our hearts, this sin is different. We don't respond to it the same as we do other sins. I think the reason for that is multifaceted. But I do think that one reason is because in our culture we have what's called gay-affirming theology or gay-affirming churches. You might have heard that term. A gay-affirming church is a church that believes in Jesus, believes He's risen from the dead, is the Son of God, and many other traditional evangelical doctrines and theologies. But they believe that you can live an openly gay lifestyle and still be saved. Now the degree into which that varies changes from group to group, whether or not it's a monogamous homosexual relationship or otherwise, it varies. But the idea is that there are groups of people out there that believe and tout that you can be a Christian and live an openly gay lifestyle. Now, this class and my portion is not to discuss that being right or wrong or indifferent. This class is starting from the presumption and the conviction that living an openly homosexual lifestyle is a sin biblically. If you want more on that or have questions about that, that would be extraneous to this class, and I'd love to talk afterward if you'd like. Also, if you're interested, there's another book I want to recommend by a guy named uh, Joe Dallas called The Pro-Gay Gospel. In The Pro-Gay Gospel, it sort of outlines the history and the theology of pro-gay theology, of gay-affirming churches, and it helps to biblically refute it. So if you're not familiar with gay-affirming theology or what's known as pro-gay theology, get familiar with it. 
because it hugely affects and intersects with the LGBT community and Christendom at large, in which we are a part and represent, right? We're, we're Christians, right? Okay, cool. Just want to make sure I have the right audience. Amen. Amen. Anybody need me to pump the brakes yet? Yes? I'm hearing some yeses. Okay. You know, some gay people can walk into the doors of our churches and they have expectations, they have biases, they have things that they're thinking, reputations in their mind of Christians. Can everybody hear okay? There's some, some great singing going on next door. Sometimes some of them might walk in wanting to know nothing but where the church stands on this issue. You know, I received an email recently through our church website from a gay person that was wanting to worship God with us, but they were wanting to know where we stood on this issue. Now, I have no way of knowing the sincerity, genuineness, or heart, or motive behind this, and that's not really my place to judge, nor am I really interested in it. It's not relevant. What's relevant is, can I help create a safe place for this person to feel the ability to explore and seek God alongside of me and us, regardless of this issue right now? So what I did is I wanted to dialogue and talk and not just have my pat answer of yay or nay be the deciding factor on whether or not this person continues to try to engage in this community of believers. And coming back to my earlier illustration, if a heterosexual couple walked through the doors of the church and they wanted to know where we stood on sex outside of marriage being a sin, we would be fairly unwise and probably rather ineffective if that was the only thing that we focused on, right? We would want to help them feel the ability to seek knowing that we're going to get to that. But right now, we want the opportunity for you to experience God, the Holy Spirit, to be in His Word and see that transformation of heart and mind. And we know if we've been experienced in helping people convert to faith in Jesus... That it is a process, right? That we do see people's minds change, right? I.e. repentance. And so I don't want a single issue to become the sole reason why someone decides to seek God with us or not. Now we know going forward, their heart and desire to seek God in truth will be revealed. But I don't want it to be prematurely judged. I hope that makes sense. Jesus says in Matthew 7... If you ask, you'll find. If you or you will receive. If you seek, you will you will find. And if you knock, the door will be open to you. He's encouraging people to seek, to ask, to find. And this is I think our heart that we have to continue to seek. We have to continue to ask and we want to create an environment where others who are interested in doing that can do that. And can do that safely and don't feel judged prematurely. Just like individuals in the LGBT community are not identified solely by their sexual orientation, right? That's not their only identity. They're people. They have lives and families and friends and hobbies and aspirations and ambitions. So we also, as a church, cannot be solely identified with where we stand on the issue of homosexuality. We are to be identified with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not a one-issue man, right? He was not a one-issue king. He was an every-issue king. Meaning that every issue that man has with God needs atoning. The gay rights movement, which in many ways I believe we should support in the ideology of equality, just as we would support racial equal rights or gender equal rights, because we know that in God's sight, everyone is in fact created equally. But hear me out. Just because we support the ideology of equal rights for the LGBT community does not mean that we're saying that they are righteous before God. They're two separate things. No one can be righteous before God without being clothed by Christ. Amen? We 
know that to be clothed with Christ, we must repent and be baptized in his name. Now, here's the question, because that might have stepped on some toes. What do you really believe? Do you really believe that God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Do you believe that God has in fact created everyone with the desire to be reconciled to Him? Do you believe that all people have been created in His image with a chance for redemption? We either believe that all people have been created for this purpose, or we believe that only some have been created for this purpose. We can't have it both ways. The laws of man and the laws of God are not the same thing. To say that we want equal human rights for someone is not saying the same thing, that they are right in the standing of God's kingdom. God's kingdom and the kingdom of man are separate things, are they not? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul is dealing with the issue of sexual immorality in the Corinth church, you guys probably remember some of the issues that might have been going on when you read 1 Corinthians, right? Some pretty outlandish sexual dynamics going on. What does he tell them? He says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside? He said, look, if somebody's being sexually immoral or living outside of the kingdom of God and its paradigm, what business is that of ours? We're not to judge that. If you want references, 1 Corinthians 5, 12. I think also, what business is it of ours to judge the LGBT community and their equal rights and the laws of man? We should have no issue with that. We should have no skin in the game or dog in the fight, as they say. It has nothing to do with us. We are of a kingdom of God. We are of a heavenly citizenship. And we should support people to be treated equally and fairly, for that is the heart of God. But we know that everyone to come into his kingdom must come broken, contrite, and humble, willing to repent. Now listen to what I am not saying, okay? Can everybody hear me okay? Because I know this is really loud and they're getting fired up and hopefully the Holy Spirit is moving. But can you guys hear me? I'm seeing some head shaking. If there's nobody that cannot hear me, if you cannot hear me, please raise your hand. I will get all up in this microphone. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. So what I am not saying is I am not saying that living a homosexual lifestyle is not a sin. Okay, I'm not saying that. It is a sin. But what I am saying is that we do not need to highlight that sin or treat it at its basic level any different than any other sin. What I am saying is that to be effective in reaching out to and intersecting with the LGBT community for the sake of the gospel and the glory of our God, we must check our own hearts for prejudice. This is what Jesus faced with his religious contemporaries. This is what was consistently rebuked time and time again. Jesus warns the Pharisees in Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son. When telling this story, he's speaking to religious people, religious leaders, and he's indicting their hearts because they, like the older brother, stand at a distance, offended that the father would be merciful. Did you know that Christians have a reputation, especially in the LGBT community, for being the older brother? Could it be that we also can become Pharisees? Could it be that we also can become self-righteous? This is our greatest hurdle to be effective ministers of reconciliation. We can be known for being prejudiced, unloving, hypocritical, and from the point of view of the LGBT person outside the church, they can look at us and feel like we're willing to rail on homosexuality and make sure that they know we think it's a sin, but we're unwilling to deal with many other sins of people right in the midst of our assembly, right in the midst of our community. And what it does is it shoots our effectiveness in the foot. It makes our message unappealing, which is what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. 
You make the heart of my father unattractive. You travel far and wide to make a single convert. And when you do, you turn them into twice the son of hell as you. This is the heart of God. Let me illustrate with a point. Another scenario. Ask yourself if the thug walks in off the street through the doors of your church. Can you see past their sagging pants? Can you see past their bloodshot eyes and smell of weed smoke on their body? Can you see past their iced out bling jewelry? Ask yourself another question. If you have not seen a person like that walk through the doors of your church ever, there is a good chance you cannot see past it, which is why they are not comfortable walking through the doors of your church. It's not that there's no one out there like that who's willing to seek God. I stand before you 15 years removed from being that guy. I walked into church smelling like weed, selling drugs, in and out of jail. judged by, I wouldn't be standing here talking to you. I can be very, very sure of that. To be effective ministers of reconciliation, especially to the LGBT community in which there is great animosity, in which there is a great reputation, not a good one, whether we created it personally or not is irrelevant. We still have to counter it, right? Because we are willing to become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel that some might be saved. We can't sit here and say well, I never heard a gay person's feelings. It doesn't matter. You represent Christ. If somebody else who in the name of Christ hurt their feelings, we got to be willing to do whatever it takes to build that bridge back. To be able to create an opportunity to seek God together. If there was ever a place for someone to feel safe, to truly seek out the greatest truths and wonders of this life. It has to be the church of Jesus Christ. As I kind of wind down here, I want to pose a couple of questions and a couple more thoughts as we get ready to transition to hearing from the Reynolds and Ellen. 10 to 20 years from now, the future is going to be very different as we have watched this culture take some very serious shifts. 10 to 20 years, we're going to be dealing with people becoming Christians who have grown up with same-sex parents and a myriad of other circumstances that we have never before had to deal with in the church as the government and the society of man changes and shifts the definition of marriage and family for the first time in our society. We need to be ready to deal boldly and compassionately and faithfully with these things. I will stand up here and tell you, I do not have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. But you know what? Jesus will always be the answer. Jesus will always be the answer. I think that this has to cause us and call us to be more faithful in the power of God. That God can and will continue to work for His glory and for the good of those who love Him. No matter what the circumstances look like to our life, to our eyes. And we can't bury our head in the sand either. Raise your hand if you're under the age of 30 in here. So you're looking at about a fourth of the room. Let me just be candid. This particular issue has changed dramatically in the last 10 to 20 years. If you are above 40 in this room, your experience with this issue is likely very different than someone who is younger than 20. And just because your experience says that this isn't that big of a deal and it's still sort of subversive and I don't really have to pay attention to it, get your head out of the sand. That comes back to we've got to be willing to have a heart like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 9. Look, if that's not your experience, amen. But we got to be willing to put ourselves in the shoes of others. Those who are young have grown up in a culture that views this issue radically different than you did. And for the sake of the gospel, so that some might be saved, let's continue to grow, to learn, to equip ourselves how to be effective. 
Let me close here with the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you for the hope that you profess. But do this with gentleness and respect. Thank you. I give you the Reynolds and Ellen.
But over time, some very serious emotional boundaries were crossed in my heart. Nothing physical ever happened with this friend, and that was never a thought or even a desire of mine with her, but she definitely became my emotional crutch. My security started to come from how she felt about me. Our friendship is what I used to fill that void inside of me. It was how I nursed my insecurity. And I became very emotionally attached to her, and I was afraid that she would see how emotionally attached I was and not want to be my friend anymore. And that's exactly what happened. And I was crushed. I was embarrassed, and I was crushed. And I was once again in pursuit of something to fill that void and in desperate need of emotional affirmation. So in my senior year of high school, right after all this went down, I was presented with the opportunity to be in a same-sex relationship. Now I realize that's an odd way to say it, presented with the opportunity. I say that because a physical relationship with a woman was never a thought or even a desire of mine, but another woman, someone who I had gotten very close to very quickly, she initiated a physical relationship with me. And when it happened, I remember being at this crossroad, and I thought, I could let this happen or I could stop it. I knew it was wrong, I felt it was wrong, but a few things went through my mind to convince me that it was okay. First I thought, well, I'm in this new stage of my life, throwing off everything I've ever known or believed, figuring out who I am and what I believe, so why not? Two, I thought, you know, I'm really mostly interested in the emotional aspect of this relationship, but if it comes with a physical portion, fine. It's worth that to me. Third, I thought, well, no guys are knocking on my door begging me to be their girlfriend, so I might as well. And the last, I had sort of this self-deprecating thought, like, huh, I guess that makes sense, doesn't it? I've always felt like a misfit girl. I guess I should be in a relationship with a woman. And so I went ahead with it. And even though a same-sex relationship was never a desire of mine, it did not take long for my mind to adjust to being in a relationship with a woman. This girl and I dated for two years, and I was fully immersed in the LGBT community during that time. This girl, our relationship, and my new title of lesbian became my life, who I was, how I defined myself. And I shut out everything and everyone that was not a part of it. My friends that I'd grown up with in the kingdom, dropped them. My parents, who had always been involved in my life and a source of guidance for me, I shut them out. I was all in. And it was great. Bet you didn't expect me to say that, did you? But it was. On one hand, it was great. I finally felt like I belonged. This was a group of people who talked about things like freedom and who you are, equality, acceptance. And those sounded like noble things to me, and they accepted me for me. My whole life I'd searched for something to fill that void inside of me, and I not only found someone who met that criteria, but I found this group of people who celebrated my difference, my lack of femininity that I'd always been so ashamed of. This group welcomed and embraced me, and it felt like I found what I was looking for. But I was still unfulfilled. Now, I couldn't talk to anyone about this. This is a completely new experience for me, and it went against everything that I believed as truth growing up. This wasn't just my first relationship with a woman. This was my first relationship ever. I didn't know what to do, what to say, what to think, how to feel. I was confused, and I wanted guidance. And I grew up with this great support system where I could openly talk to and gain guidance from my parents' wisdom. And when I finally wanted to seek that guidance, I felt like I couldn't because I was ashamed. And I thought that they would be ashamed of me, too. Even though I was gaining some fulfillment from my relationship with this girl, I was still in many ways very unfulfilled. So I kept filling that void with the only thing I thought I had, my relationship with this girl and my involvement with the LGBT community. So when we broke up, it was too much for me to handle. I ran away, literally, to Florida to live with my grandmother. This was a time of immense confusion for me. I was no longer in a same-sex relationship, but was I gay? Was I straight? Was I both? Did I think that was okay? There was no being gay 101 to help me determine what to do next. So I figured out some things in Florida, but unfortunately my problems and insecurities followed me there, so I ran away again, further this time, to Ireland. <laughs> Why? I have no idea. <laughs> but we do crazy things when we're desperate for love and belonging, and I was desperate to find something to fill that void. So in Ireland, it was bleak. <laughs> I was completely miserable, I was incredibly alone. I was paying way too much money for an apartment, which is a glorified garage with a bed in it. I was getting paid way too little as an intern at a bookshop. I had no friends, I was too insecure to go out and make any. I ate almost every meal, which was a sub from a convenience shop in my freezing cold garage apartment. It was awful. 
So finally, when I was kind of at the end of my rope, as a last resort, I thought, well, let me try God. So I started reading my Bible a little and praying a little and listening to some Michael W. Smith. And slowly, my heart started to soften. And so one day I was on my way to work and I prayed, God, could you please do me a favor today? I am so tired of feeling unfulfilled and unhappy all the time. Could you please just make me happy today for no reason? No reason other than because you love me. And he did. All day I didn't have that familiar dark cloud hanging over my head. And on my way home that night, in the middle of this rainy Irish street, I just started crying because I realized that the answer to all of my searching had been staring me in the face the whole time. God, only God and his love could truly fulfill me and save me. And God did save me. I was baptized on February 25th, 2010. And since then, thank you. expectations. 
I thought, um, well, surely, because we're doing it God's way, that my children would become disciples when they weren't old enough, but certainly while they were still at home, before they went off to college. And so um, that's how that was my expectation. And our son did. Our son became a disciple when he was in high school. And I thought, well, Ellen is, you know, she's taking a little longer, but she'll get there. Well, she didn't. And when she didn't, I started to really panic. And I really had this, um, all this anxiety about it. And I had this narrow view, this narrow, I, I really can't believe that I couldn't think outside this box, but I really thought that if someone's raised in the kingdom like that, then of course they're gonna become disciples while they're still at home, or else they never would. And so I even, to my shame, I said these words one day to my husband. He was trying to calm me down from all this anxiety and panic. I thought, here she is getting ready to go to college, and she's nowhere near becoming a disciple. And I said, it's not like anyone raised in church their whole life is going to leave home and then suddenly decide to follow Jesus when they're 20 years old. I said that. Now, as a side note, guess how old Ellen was when she became a disciple? <laughs> she was 20 years old. God has a way of showing me my lack of faith and reminding me of my lack of faith. But when Ellen got involved in a same-sex relationship, I knew what was happening. I didn't know right away. I didn't know for a while. And then I think part of me didn't want to know. Um, but I eventually realized what was going on. And I think what I went through was what a lot of us as moms go through. I blame myself. I thought, is this my fault? What did I do wrong? Is God letting me down? I didn't know if I should confront her. I didn't know if I should let her know that I knew, if I should start pulling out Bible verses. I didn't know. I knew she wasn't same-sex attracted. I knew that. But I really had to contemplate in my heart. I thought she could choose this way of life forever. Like she could choose this path. What am I going to do? I knew I had to respond. I had to know what am I going to do? How am I going to respond in my heart? So all this time I'm thinking this is about Ellen and her sin and helping her. And now I'm starting to realize this is about me. This is about me and my heart and dealing with God and what am I going to do? And so I decided to pray. I decided I'm going to honor God the best that I can. I'm just going to pray. And I wrestled with God and I really asked for God to change my heart and help me resolve this. And I did. I resolved in my heart, okay, no matter what, I can love my daughter. I can accept her. I wasn't going to back down from what I knew was right. I knew what was right. I knew what was wrong. But I resolved in my heart, I can love her and accept her regardless of, of circumstances, her sin, whatever path she chooses. So when she went off to Florida, I knew she was running away. I didn't want her to go. But something told me I had to let her go. And um, I think this is where I saw that my faith was starting to grow because I wasn't worried suddenly that she might be pulled into some false religious beliefs and things that were false. Or I knew that she knew the truth. And so I had some peace now about me. And so I kind of figured out that God loved Ellen more than we did. <laughs> And that this was way more about God than it was about me and the ways that I raised her and the things that I implemented in our home. I knew if I panicked or freaked out that I wouldn't be living the way that I always believed in, which was in God's power to overcome and in his great mercy and his great mercy. You know, I always want everything to be easy. I still do. I like it if it's easy. <laughs> this wasn't easy. This was hard. Uh, but it was a great time of us building our faith. Um, now what God has done is bless that. Just that little bit of growth in faith. God has really blessed it. And he's given me and my daughter uh, what I always wanted in a daughter. Ever since I knew I was having a daughter. Just a deep relationship, a deep friendship with her. We share so many things. We love being together. I'm proud of her. I respect her. And for those who may not know, Ellen got married this past June to a wonderful man, Paul Radcliffe, sitting right behind her. <laughs> um, and so every, every wedding is special. But this is extra special just 
um, and just the way that God has has blessed her and blessed her, her faith. You know, this is our story. It's like a blip in time in our lives. But um, I know that not every story turns out the way ours did. Not every circumstance is the same. But what I do know is that whatever the circumstance, whatever the situation, whatever the outcome, faith, love, and mercy are required of us. And as long as we have faith and as long as we have God, there's always hope. So thank you so much for being here and hearing our story. Um, now I'm going to turn over to my husband, Jeff. So as you can imagine, it was very tough watching our daughter go through this. We felt very helpless on the outside being able to reach her and help her. One of the things we've always believed as parents is one of our primary roles before God was to protect our children. And when we noticed our children kind of going off the rails, there were times we would invade their privacy. Sometimes we did that and they knew it, and other times they didn't. You may not agree with that, but for us, we were fine with that, and our children knew. And that's how we found out about Ellen's choices. We invaded her privacy. And, uh, and so then we had to make a decision. Do we confront Ellen? Do we talk to her about this? And we decided we were going to pray and we're going to get some advice. Now, we were very careful who we told about this. We didn't want to tell anybody something that would cause them to struggle. We didn't want to, you know, tell a secret that just seemed to travel around the church. We wanted people who were very spiritual and very discreet to help us out with this. And we began to pray. We began to think about what's the best way, knowing who our daughter is, how she's been raised, how she responds to God. And it, our decision surprised us because we knew that we could have met with her and kind of implored her to maybe do the right thing. Might have been able to convince her to put that relationship to the side. But we realized that that would not have been her decision. It would have been her relationship with us causing her to make that decision. And she would have to go through this all over again. So we decided that we would stand on the outside. And if things got really bad, we would come in and confront this. But that we were going to allow her to work through this and pray for her. One of the hardest decisions we've had to make as parents is allowing your children to be scarred and be, have to watch that. So, but we knew that with who Ellen is, she needed to have her own decision, her own conviction, her own foundation before God and work through it on her own. And so we had to give her the freedom to do that. Times right now in our country, they're very confusing, aren't they? In the last two years, the way Satan has warped the sexual agenda through our country, none of us would have imagined two years ago where we would be now on issues of sex. Where would we be now on transgender and same-sex attraction? And yet, here we are, because Satan is going to keep pushing this through. Two weeks ago, Miley Cyrus came out and informed the world that she was pansexual meaning she would have uh, sexual relations with heterosex, same-sex, transgender sex. It didn't matter. Nothing was off the charts. She was pansexual. Miley Cyrus is all over the Internet. She's all over the news. It's who our children see. Within a couple of years, that's going to be the cool thing. That'll be the enlightened thing. That'll be things that kids do. They're going to become pansexual because somebody else has done it and it's this deep knowledge that they know and they get to experience and nobody else does. That's where we're going. And if you're like me, I feel very uncomfortable about that. I feel very afraid about what my children are have to, going to go through in this world. But here's the truth. We are not going to be able to change the legislation, enact new laws, legislate people's morality. That is gone. That is no longer going to happen. Jesus said in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
I have seen in my time on earth that God's love is an answer to everything. We have to be able to create an atmosphere, as John was talking about, in our churches where people can come in and they sense that love, they feel that love, that that part that God created in their heart, that it begins to awaken and they have hope and they know that even if they're not going to agree everything we're going to say, there's something here that doesn't exist anywhere else they've ever been. There was a brother who, a couple of years ago, he's in our ministry, a young Marine. He used to confess his sin to me. And it was sexual sin, and we would pray, and we'd go to the Bible, and we'd talk about it. And about a year and a half ago, I got up and said to the church how the Holy Spirit had been working on my heart about the issue on same-sex attraction. And then I felt too uncomfortable about it. I felt too vulnerable talking about it. It was just kind of weird. And that I, I realized God was working on my heart and trying to change me. And after church, he took me outside and he said, you know, all those times I confess sex to you, my sexual sin, all those things we've talked about, every single time it was same sex. And I never told you because I didn't feel safe. I, I stand before you shamed that that could happen. I, I never would imagine that. But if that's happening to me, it's happening to other people. <laughs> you know, we think we can be very open and very honest and very vulnerable about things. But for somebody who feels the way that Ellen described, there's a new level of openness. There's a new level of love. There's a new level of, of heart that we need to reach if people are going to feel safe and secure. And we must learn to develop that openness. I love strength and weakness. I love what it does. But I'm going to tell you the truth. People who deal with fighting this sin cannot do it alone. And fighting it remotely, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. But our churches need to develop in an area where they can fight it with us. That we can fight the battle with them. Um, did you hear a couple years ago an assistant woman's basketball coach at the University of Nebraska was uh, had a home invasion? And she said the people broke into her home and they carved hate symbols and signs into her abdomen. And she went to the hospital and she was there for a week. And uh, as she was being interviewed, it turns out that she fabricated the story. But as she was being interviewed the last day in the hospital, she said, I'm just terribly afraid to go home. I just don't even think I can sleep because the fear that I have that this will happen again. And when she got home that night, there were soccer moms, motorcycle gangs, PTA, Boy Scouts. There were people with sleeping bags all the way around her house to spend the night so that she would feel safe. That needs to be us. Amen. We cannot leave love and compassion to soccer moms and motorcycle gangs. If we don't lead the way, who's going to do it? We have got to love in the same way that Jesus would love. And we say things like this. I hear this a lot. Well, bro, you know what? I hate the sin, but I love the sinner. As Ellen described, for those people who identify with same-sex attracted, their choice of sexuality is so embedded in their self-image that if you hate the sin to them, you hate them. And there's no way that we can overcome that by some trite saying that we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. We've got to find a way to love the sinner, and nobody has all the answers. Nobody knows how to do this yet. We have the opportunity to not develop a church policy, but to come together before God in our conscience and be led by the Holy Spirit to discover a new level of love to help people feel safe and secure. We have to instill hope. We have to instill love in their heart so they can make the jump in faith to God. Uh, about a year ago, a sister who was very dear to us, she was the first conversion in the church when we moved there six years ago. And she left the church and God to pursue a same-sex relationship. And we met with her and we talked and there's no judgment. We said, listen, we want you to come to church. We'll pay for you to have a, a subscription to Strength and Weakness. We think you've mistaken. The battle is not for you to be heterosexual. In fact, you may never have, not have that desire. The battle is to be holy and let God heal your heart in love. She went home that day and said, great, I'll see you on Sunday. And she began to attack us on social media. And after about six or seven weeks, she showed up to church. And she kind of comes in, her daughter, whom we love, who we have been so close to, I've gone out on father-totter dates with, wouldn't talk
talked to anybody. Just sat down with her mom. And her mom sat down with her arms folded, barely saying, just was surly the whole time. And I thought, I got to go over there and hug her. I got to go let her know that I love her. And as I walked up to her, I started feeling really funky. You know, all these emotions that I didn't expect started pouring out of me. And by the time I got to hug her, I was so stiff I could barely move. And so later that day, it really convicted me. I got home and I shot her a text and said, hey, I am really sorry that it was so awkward when I came to hug you. I just started feeling a lot of really strong emotions that I wasn't prepared for. Can we have coffee? We went to the coffee place a couple days later. She sat down before I could say anything. She goes, I'm really glad you invited me to coffee because I had demonized you. I know you love me. I know you love my family. And I told her, I really do love you. And I want you to be happy. Each of us has only been given one life to live on this earth. And I want you to be happy. But I know that you have been happier when you have walked with God and obeyed God. And as much as I love you, I love God more. And in my sentimentality, I would probably accept your choice and be okay with it. But I've had to go back and look what the Bible says and what God instructs. And God is not okay with this and I can't condone it. And even though I love you, I love God more. That was a very hard conversation. But I think that it was so good for me to go back and look in the Bible and develop my convictions and try to find a way to show her my love even though I took a stand for what God wants. And I'll be honest, I've been married 27 years, going up on 27, and I don't understand it. And we look at same-sex attraction as this incredibly negative thing, but I told her that there's something very intrinsically valuable about the relationship that God has set in store between a man and a woman. There's something complementary. There's something amazing there that God wants for each one of us to share that joy and that trust. So it's not just something that you can't have. There's something that God wants to give you. Amen? It was great for our church to go through this. Very difficult. We, we talked about it. We we're very honest and open. But, but we all developed the same conviction because of what God's Word said. Here's the truth. It would be very easy to come up with a rule as a church and say, this is what our posture is. But God's already done that with the Bible. We don't need another church policy. We need to take each individual on a case-by-case basis. And just like we did with Ellen in prayer and examining what the best thing to do, just like we did with this woman, we've got to take it on an individual basis and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us. One of the worst things we can do is say, oh yeah, I've done that before. This is what I should do now. We've got to let the Holy Spirit lead. Amen? You know, there's this interesting, there's a recent church study that just came out. 80% of all kids who have been raised in the church will leave the church by the age of 30. And it's not because they don't have friendships. It's not because they're not serving the poor and feeling valuable in that way. It's not because the message of who God is, His nature, and His Son isn't being preached. It's one primary reason. Because churches have stopped dealing with social issues. We cower behind what we know, we cower behind what we believe, and we will not discuss the difficult things like same-sex attraction. Because of that, we are losing a generation of children who no longer believe that the gospel is fit for them because it does not apply to the real issues that they face in their lives. We have got to change that. Christianity is a thinking man's and woman's religion. We have got to examine our choices, examine our integrity, examine our conscience before God. And we've got to find a way to keep and help people feel safe. To be able to freely talk about what is going on in their life. To be helped by God's love, the only thing that can cure the ailment of sin. 
and to be able to experience the blessing that comes from obedience and surrender to God's Holy Spirit. Amen? Thank you guys so much for coming out. We are out of time, so we will not be able to do any Q&A. If you would like to talk, uh, we need to clear out this room for the next class, but we will be out in the hall if you would like. So I'm going to close this out in a prayer, and then you can be on your way. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need your spirit and its wisdom and his guidance, Father. And we just ask that you would fill our hearts to be more like yours, that we truly can love more deeply and love others as we love ourselves. Father, help us as we navigate the difficult issues and circumstances of our current culture and world for the sake of your gospel, Father, for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.